morning, y'all. I'm excited to be here. I am, I have been a fan of Neighbors Church ever since y'all started. Um, and I've known Dan, uh, I guess for about 18 months now. Um, we met, we became friends, and uh, there's so much that's here that's exciting. Um, for me, I, I really appreciate your commitment to community, uh, your commitment to the Bible, your commitment to embodied, emotionally healthy spirituality, I think are unique and are a blessing here in San Diego. And so I'm grateful that I get to be here to talk about what I'm going to talk about today. Um, let me introduce myself. Um, for work, uh, until last year, I pastored a church downtown in San Diego at the Moniker Warehouse called Harbor City Church. It's still there. I'm not. Um, and uh, so, and it was good, all good, all good, really good. Now I run a leadership coaching ministry. It's called Clarity Focus Heart Coaching and Consulting. Uh, that's what I do. And so I coach leaders in business, leaders in the church and in the nonprofit world. And a bunch of my clients are part of the LGBTQ plus community. So most of them are Christians and they're trying to work out like, hey, what does it look like to love Jesus and to be what I am? You know, how does that work? A lot of people don't have many outlets, and so I get, to, I get to, to help them. But overall, I help leaders experience God and grow the impact of their leadership and of their organization. So that's what I do for a living. Um, in addition, uh, I've just started a ministry called Refocused Relationships. Refocused Relationships. And this is a ministry that's designed to do two things. First, we help parents and straight friends experience God's heart for the LGBTQ plus community uh, and learn to share his heart with their children and their friends. And then the second thing that we do is we help LGBTQ plus loved ones to know that God's disposition toward them is different from the negative experiences that they've had in the church and in the world. Um, and so that ministry meets once a month, first Thursday of the month. We're meeting this Thursday. If you want to come, if you know somebody who you think would benefit from it, um, send them. We, we meet at Communion Church on Balboa Avenue, so just about six or seven minutes north of here. So when Dan asked me to preach, um, he asked me to talk about, hey, could you present our church with a biblical and a theological framework for homosexuality? He's like, I'm going out of town. I've got this wedding. Could you come and do this? I said, of course, of course. Um, he asked me to do this because he knows that this isn't just about theology for me. It's about people that I love. And that actually is the first thing that I would want to say about this issue, is that it's not just about what does the Bible say, but it's about who does the Bible say it to? What are they going through? How are they experiencing what we're sharing with them? This is about people. And so um, Dan knows that I'm part of what uh, what we call a chosen family. Okay, so I have a biological family. I'm married, been married for 28 years now. Um, four children from 24 down to 17. So I've got four kids, um, but I'm also part of another family, uh, a chosen family. We're a group of about 15 men and women um, who are family to each other. And the members of this group um, are mostly, they're LGBTQ plus people, um, who have covenanted together to be family for each other. And this is absolutely essential 
Chosen family is absolutely essential, especially for members. It's, it's essential for all of us. It's the reason why you need to get into a community group, right? It's because we all need community. Folks in the LGBTQ plus world, they need more than just a small group. Like, they need family. They need people that they know uh, are going to be there for them um, and to be family for them. And so many of the folks in our chosen family are celibate. Um, two are married to someone else of the opposite gender and trying to figure that out. Um, and some are still exploring celibacy and what Jesus calls them to. Um, and so, again, today isn't just about theology. It's about real people. At least it is for me, and I hope it is for you too. And so there are a lot of Christians, gay and straight, who struggle with Jesus and sexuality, Christianity and homosexuality. Like, what exactly are we supposed to do this, uh, with this? I feel like um, that there's real tension that exists no matter what you think on this issue. Okay, if you're on the more conservative side, conservatives, Christians, often feel like they have to choose between loving Jesus and loving their LGBTQ plus friend, child. Um, and they sit in that tension. They feel like, I have to choose. If I love Jesus, I can't love them. If I love them, then I'm not loving Jesus. And that's the real tension that a lot of conservative Christians feel. Um, more liberal-leaning Christians, they feel like there are passages in the Bible that make them uncomfortable, and so they end up experientially feeling less connected to Jesus in the Bible because there are things that they kind of have to explain away or act like they aren't there or hope nobody reads those things, um, and that really does have a negative impact on their relationship with God. And in the middle of all of this, like while Christians who aren't dealing with these issues personally are fighting and debating and struggling over what the right thing to do is, most of the people who are in the LGBTQ community, many of them who care about Jesus, they're stuck in turmoil. Like for them, many of them have never been in a Christian environment where someone has made them feel like God actually loves them for who they are. And so we're all in a mess here. Like all of us are in attention here. And one of the things that I love about Dan and about neighbors is that Dan will address the tension and he'll say, hey y'all, can we just breathe for a second? Let's take a deep breath. We are living in like this, this topic brings to all of us attention and we don't often know how to deal with it. And when I breathe, my breath reminds me of Genesis 2 verse 5 where it says that God formed the human from the dust of the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And that verse reminds me that every time I breathe, we just sang about this too, I think the first song. Every time I breathe, my breath is God telling me, I am with you and I'm in you. So I'm not gonna give you all the answers today. I can't. There's no way that anybody could stand up and give all of the answers for this topic. It is so far-reaching and vast. 
We could spend hours and hours and hours talking and we would still be scratching the surface. But we're gonna say some things today that I think are gonna help us to sit in the tension and to find Jesus in the tension with us. Because on top of the tension, the church has moved forward and I think made two major mistakes in its relationship to the gay community and to LGBTQ plus people. Okay, so we're gonna have some slides. There's two ways that the church has hurt the LGBTQ plus community. Um, first, far right conservative. So this is my right, but that's your left. So let me point in my opposite direction and just own it so that I can do it right. So Christians on the far right, they tend to be anti-gay. Okay, they tend to be anti-gay. And so these are the Christians who started ex-gay ministries. Right? I don't know if any of you saw the documentary Pray Away. I mean, it was a documentary that was about ministries that basically said, if you are gay and follow Jesus, you should become straight. That if you love Jesus, he, and you really, if, <laughs> it's not if you love Jesus, it's if you really love Jesus, then your homosexuality will go away and you will become straight. Um, they are anti-gay very often their churches teach that the LGBT community, they, they treat the LGBTQ plus community um, as though they are the worst people and that there is no hope for them unless they become straight. They often say the sexuality is a choice that you can unchoose if you really want to follow Jesus. They take a few verses in the Bible and they beat people up with them. And this is wrong. This is wrong. It's a wrong posture and it's been harmful to the LGBTQ plus community. Okay, there's a second way I think the church has damaged and hurt the LGBTQ plus community. They're the far left liberal Christians, they call themselves affirming gay or just affirming. Um, and these churches, these people tend to say that if you follow Jesus, you really can do whatever you want sexually. Okay, there really are no constraints. And maybe they're just so concerned about putting any constraints because of the way the far right has dealt with people, and maybe that's what motivates them. And, um, but I believe this is also wrong, and this is also harmful to people that are dealing with this. And Jesus rejects both of these approaches, okay? Jesus moves beyond these two polar opposite extremes, Okay, the gospel very often moves us forward in a third way between these two wrong approaches. Okay, and so, um, so Jesus moves us. Go to the next slide. So Jesus has a third way. The gospel leaves those two polar opposites and moves us beyond them both to a third way of the gospel. I think Jesus lives in and calls us to join him in the messy middle. Okay, the messy middle. And the messy middle is where love and truth and grace embrace each other. Okay, the messy middle is when you refuse to only have love or grace or truth. Sorry, love, truth or grace. Um, and it's messy because people are messy. And because the right response isn't always the same in every single situation with every single person. And so what I want to do today is I want you to come face to face with Jesus and his third way.
I want you to meet Jesus, and I want you to see how he responds to a situation where sexual brokenness comes into conflict with religious brokenness, okay? Jesus refused, refused and refuses to be either anti or affirming, okay? And just so you know, if, if some of you are here and, man, you're dealing with things that, that make you think, man, like what I'm going through, what I'm carrying, what I'm dealing with right now, I really don't care about this issue. Like, if that's you, Lord bless you. Like, honestly, if you're dealing with something that keeps you from being able to wrap your mind or, or wrap your heart around a conversation about this, Jesus is gonna meet you too, I promise. You're gonna come face to face with a Jesus who sees you and cares deeply about you wherever you are, okay? We're gonna look at John chapter eight, Okay, John chapter eight, we're gonna see Jesus's third way. And so first we're gonna read the first six verses. So if you have a Bible or your phone, look there. Um, it's gonna be up on the screens as well. John eight verse one says this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and the people, all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, okay, that were in charge back then of all, everybody's religion. Um, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman so what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So the religious leaders, they come and they challenge and trap Jesus. Verse four makes it clear, they bring this woman in who's caught in the act of adultery, but verse six makes it clear that this wasn't about her, right? They're trying to trap Jesus. And so the religious leaders, they have this anti-adultery stance, Right? They are there with stones in hand, ready to kill this woman, ready to execute her in that moment. And they're using this woman as a pawn in their trap for Jesus. Now, the woman's stance is clearly affirming adultery. Right? We don't know anything about her, but the fact that she engaged in this is a demonstration that she was okay with committing adultery. So the religious leaders give Jesus two choices. Will you condemn the woman or will you condemn the Bible? Right, that's the choice. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So the law is the Bible that they all had at the time, the Old Testament. Um, what do you say? And this interaction is complicated. It is political because these leaders it's not just, I mean, it's not about the woman. It's about they're trying to get Jesus to say something or do something that they could then galvanize the crowds against Jesus or turn him in to the authorities. Like, that's what they're there for. So this is political, and it's also polarizing. Not unlike our issue today with homosexuality. The religious leaders, they want Jesus to condemn the woman 
kind of like anti-gay ministries. The woman, on the other hand, standing there with stones around her, she wants Jesus to ignore her sexual sin and not condemn her, much like affirming gay ministries do. But Jesus surprises everyone. So we're going to see Jesus respond. And first, this is Jesus' third way response to religious brokenness. Right? Verse 6 says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they, this is the religious leaders, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. No one in this situation expected Jesus to create a third gospel-centered alternative. Right? Jesus' response here, it's, it's stunning. Because, listen to this, Jesus didn't play into their this or that offer. Okay? He doesn't concede that the question is, are you affirming adultery or are you anti-adultery? Because if you're anti-adultery, you're going to kill her along with us. Right? Jesus doesn't play into that because that is a satanic, polarizing distraction. A satanic, polarizing distraction. So it's a distraction. It takes away the real core issue. It distracts from the real core issue it is polarizing because you've got two options, right? Two options, this or that. And it's satanic because both of those options end up serving the enemy. Satanic polarizing distractions. Are there any situations in our day and age that might be called satanic polarizing distractions? Are there any times, are there any issues that are brought to you where you're offered two options and only two options and you are told you have to choose one or the other and if you aren't perfectly aligned with one side, then you are automatically on the worst part of the other side? What the religious leaders cooked up for Jesus, I think was inspired by Satan. And I think Satan is continuing to cook these things up for us. And we live and breathe these things every single day. And so if I can offer to you that there is something, there's a title that you can put on these things now that might help you respond well. Satanic polarizing distractions. Jesus refuses, refuses to choose either side. Instead, Jesus establishes a third way beyond the two. 
And what Jesus does here first is that Jesus confronts the anti-adultery group. Okay, that's what he does first. The religious leaders, right? These are the religious leaders who want to stone the woman. He confronts them. And this is a big deal that I want you to see. When there's a conflict between religious brokenness and sexual brokenness, who does Jesus confront first? He's confronting the religion. He's confronting the religious leaders who are claiming to be from God because guess what? Religious brokenness is worse than sexual brokenness. Jesus confronts the religious brokenness first and he confronts them with their hypocrisy. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus might be implying that these religious leaders are guilty of adultery themselves. Like, okay, go ahead. If you all haven't committed adultery, go ahead. He might be more generally confronting their hypocrisy and their hunger for power. But Jesus is not with the religious leaders. They are not on his side. And in this moment, um, I think it's important because maybe some of you are here today and, and maybe you've got lots of anger at people who are guilty of a sin. Maybe there's sin that really, really bothers you um, in other people and you have this like justice note that comes out of you, that, that fills you, that, um, that makes you super angry, that you want to destroy people, that you want to see them hurt. I mean, hopefully not executed, but maybe executed. Um, man, if you're angry at the sins of others, I want you to hear Jesus inviting you to himself. Jesus is inviting you to himself and he's saying, if you're without sin, then feel free to cast a stone. Like if we were to picture that moment, Jesus' words would then just echo in that moment and then you'd hear like, as the stones dropped from their hands. And I think Jesus wants to invite you to drop the stone from your hands. Now, this makes, this response to the religious leaders, this makes Jesus look like he's affirming adultery, doesn't it? Until we see Jesus' interaction with the woman. In verses 10 and 11, which we'll look at in just a sec, there we see Jesus actually doesn't side with the affirming adultery group either. His message to the woman, his response to the woman is Jesus's third way response to sexual brokenness. Okay, and so let's look at that. Verses 10 and 11. So Jesus then stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. A 
Friends, Jesus came to earth to show us what God is like. He is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, Jesus. They were like, Jesus, if you could just show us the Father, that'll be enough. And Jesus is like, really? Have I been with you this long, Philip, and you still don't get it? You ever felt that way about somebody? So does Jesus. He totally gets it. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And here we see Jesus representing the Father. And his first words to this woman are, neither do I condemn you. And so Jesus is not part of the hypocritical anti-adultery group, right? The one who actually has the authority to condemn says that he won't condemn. Like, I don't think we can emphasize that enough. The one who actually could throw a stone because he was without sin not only refused to throw a stone, but confronted the people who were wanting to throw a stone. The one who has the authority to condemn says that he won't condemn. Man. Anti-gay Christians, anti-gay ministries need to put these words in their mouth and in their heart. Neither do I condemn you. But Jesus isn't done. He says after this, he says, go and from now on sin no more. And so the Jesus who doesn't condemn also doesn't side with the anti-adultery group either. So Jesus actually invites this woman to follow him and to change her behavior. He invites her to follow him with her sexuality. He doesn't condemn her, but he does correct her. Jesus corrects the woman's sexual activity, and he corrects the religious leader's response to her sexual activity. Right? It's one of these situations where Jesus is there, and man, we're all in this mess together. We're all, we've all blown it. Like all of us, everyone there, like nobody was innocent. But Jesus' response to this situation, I think, serves as a model for Christians today, really responding to any behavior that should be corrected by the Bible. But before we imitate Jesus, right, before we talk about how can we do this and follow Jesus in this way, I feel like we need, some of us maybe need us some of us need Jesus to say to them, hey, I don't, I don't condemn you. I know what you've done, but I don't condemn you. Like, you need to know this. You know what you've done. I know what you've done. But I'm here standing before you with love. Neither do I condemn you. Some of us need to be reminded about that today. The anxiety, the shame, um, just the sorrow over our brokenness. Jesus, with tears in his eyes, 
would say to you, his beloved child, I'm with you in this. I don't condemn you. I'm with you. And when you can hear Jesus say that, then when he says what's next, it feels different. There's a gospel love in what he says next. Because what he says next is, go now, and because of your encounter with me, because you know that I don't condemn you, go and be free from sin. Like from here forward, let's walk together in a new life. Can y'all receive that today? So what this means for us is that we need to learn how to, pr- to practice correction that doesn't condemn. Okay, and in whatever way we share the truth of the Bible, we need to do it in a way that doesn't condemn the person, right? Because if Jesus, who had the authority to condemn, didn't condemn the woman caught in adultery, then we shouldn't condemn people either even if we know they're guilty. Christians often, I mean, we're notorious for this, right? If you ask people who aren't part of the church, what's the first thing you think about when you think about Christians? Family feud, right? Top five answers on the board. (laughs) Number one is typically, oh, judgmental or condemning. Not every Christian, not every church, there are signs, but, and some of this is part of the satanic polarization that the media does, where if it could just paint Christians in this light, then we don't have to deal with any of them, and we could just marginalize them and not have to deal with any of the claims of Jesus, um, but I feel like we've earned a lot of that, you know? At least I have. I have been very condemning in my correcting and meeting Jesus, this Jesus in this passage is setting me free. For those of us who have been judgmental and condemning, Jesus is saying, I don't condemn you, but go now and sin no more. I want to invite you to a new way of life. So how do we do this? How do we then grow in our ability to possibly correct without condemning, right? If that's what we're aiming for, how do we correct without condemning? I think just a few things by way of application. First, you want to show whoever it is. I mean, so we're going to land this in the area of of people in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, First, you need to show them that you are for them. Okay, you need to show people that you are for them. And the way that happens is by you demonstrating real love and care. Okay, if you don't demonstrate love, Keep your mouth shut, okay? If you don't demonstrate committed love and care, do not correct because when you correct, what they're going to hear and feel will have no love in it. Well, you know, I just told them what the Bible says. You did not tell them what the Bible says. What you did was you took something that the Bible says and communicated it in the opposite way of Jesus. That is not what the Bible says. Just because you got the words right doesn't mean you got Jesus' tone right. Jesus said to this woman, neither do I condemn you. 
And so we have to show people real love and care. The reason that Jesus could say, go now and sin no more, is because of what he just did for her. He could have said whatever he wanted, and she'd been like, that was the most loving thing I've ever heard. She was going to die. She was face to face with bricks that were going to crush her skull. And because of Jesus, she lived. Jesus showed her that he was for her. And then he said, I don't condemn you. Before he said, go now and sin no more. She knew that Jesus was for her. The question is, for people in your life, what do they see? Do they know that you're for them? Do they really know? Not just because of what you say, but by how you live. Do they know that you are for them? And I think this looks like, so show them that you're for them. This looks like having a relationship first posture. Okay, if you want to communicate the way Jesus did, if you want to communicate the way that God does, God has a relationship first posture. For God, the most important thing is whether you're in a relationship with him or not. And his doors are wide open all the time. He accepts you as you are with all of your baggage, with everything that you've been, everything you've done, everything that's been done to you. Jesus says, welcome, come to me if you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I will take you as you are and love you as you are. And you have no idea how patient I am. It's a relationship first. Even if you disagree with me, I'm committed to being friends with you. Even if you, are, even if you disagree with me, even if you think I'm an idiot or I'm wrong, I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. I am in this relationship committed to you in demonstrable ways. I care for you. I check in with you. We meet together. We hang out together. I share my life with you. You share your life with me. That's the life from which we can offer correction without condemnation. And relationship first doesn't mean that you have to agree. It means, hey, you know what? We might disagree about this issue. You might think that the Bible says something different about homosexuality, although talk, you know, we're talking about all kinds of things here, but, but you might think the Bible says something different about homosexuality. That's okay. I still love you. That's okay. I'm still committed to you. That's okay. I'm still going to, I, for me, it's our relationship that matters. I want you to know for sure that no matter what happens to you, no matter what you do, no matter how you act, no matter who you are, no matter what you, I mean, all of that, I love you. Relationship first. And then um, another piece of this is, is a gospel first posture. So show them that you're for them, relationship first posture, and then a gospel first posture. Because guess what? All of us do things God doesn't want us to do. Okay, all of us. All of us have done things, said things, like thought things, felt things that God does not want. All of us stand, if God were to come at us the way that we sometimes, and the church sometimes comes at people in the gay community, we would all be going to hell. But God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, 
Christ died for us. While there was nothing about us that was aiming in the God direction, God sent his son to show us how much he loves us and to die on the cross for our sins. To show us that he is for us. To show us that he has a relationship first posture. That anything that could separate us from him, he has removed by the blood of Jesus. And what he offers us is grace and mercy. Friends, Jesus has loved you that way. Think about all of the things that you've done in the last year that don't please him. Jesus comes to you, even if you don't have time for him during the week, he comes to you every Sunday at least and says, do you love me? And you say, well, not perfectly. And Jesus says, you're welcome. If you love me, all the rest we can deal with. All the rest is covered by grace. And when you, friends, experience that love from Jesus, that's the source. That's the, the place where you can get love to offer to people that need correcting. Man. I mean, this is why I follow him. Committed to me no matter how many times I have failed. He's committed to me when I've got things I've been dealing with for decades that are broken in me. Because like there, there is this temptation that, okay, wait, so if I'm nice to this person, then I can correct them, right? <laughs> and then they'll stop and they'll come and they'll follow Jesus. This is, this is a long game here that we're in. This is a long game because again, we're trying to image God. And God is in the long game with us, so we're in the long game with everyone else, including the LGBTQ plus community. So we want to show that we're for them, relationship first and gospel first. Again, there's so many things that we can say. I'll be around here if you want to talk afterwards, but um, please discuss this in your community and try to build ways and check in with each other on how well am I doing showing that I'm committed before I correct, right? So it's correcting without condemning, <laughs> commitment before correcting. You know, those are the two ways, the phrases that you can use to hang your hat on this. So, but y'all, let's pray. Let's thank God for who he is. Father, we thank you for being not only our God, but our savior. Jesus, we humbly repent we humbly repent for the ways that we have not imaged the way that you've loved us. You have forgiven us so much and yet we hold other people under the thumb of condemnation in ways that we just want to release to you. Jesus, we want to drop our stones. Will you please show us the way that you see the people that we feel need correcting? And will you lead us to committed love for them so that we can image you and show them the gospel as we share the gospel with them? Make this church a 
place where people feel your love and grace, your patience, your long suffering with all of us. We love you and praise you. Amen.